to the Readings Podcast, celebration of books. I'm Nico Gallagher. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dominic Smith, author of the acclaimed Last Painting of Sarah DeVos, her readings favourite, about his new book, Return to Valletto. It's set in a nearly abandoned Italian village, and it sees a family that stayed and long-buried secrets from World War II come to the surface. On a hilltop in Umbria sits Valletto, once a thriving village and a hub of resistance and refuge during World War II, centuries of earthquakes, landslides, and the lure of a bed of life have left it neglected. Only ten residents remain, including the widows Serafino, three eccentric sisters, and their steely centenarian mother, who live quietly in their medieval villa. Then their nephew and grandson, Hugh, a historian, returns. But someone else has arrived before him, laying claim to the cottage where Hugh spent his childhood summers. The unwelcome guest is the captivating and no-nonsense Alyssa Tomasi, who asserts that the family patriarch, Aldo Serafino, a resistance fighter whom her own family harboured, gave the cottage to them in gratitude. Like so many threads of history, this revelation unravels a secret, a betrayal, a disappearance, and an unspeakable act of violence that has impacted Valletto across generations. To interview Dominic, we're joined by Readings Managing Director, Mark Rubo. Thank you for joining us, Dominic, and over to you, Mark. Dominic, it's so great to see you. I'm, I must admit, I'm, I've been a fan of yours uh, ever since Sarah DeVos. That was uh, a book that still lives with me, and, um, and this book, too, it's pretty good, I think. <laughs> so how did it yeah. come about? So this book has sort of been 10 years in the making. On trips to Italy, I sort of started to notice just the sheer number of small towns and villages that are either sort of completely abandoned or on the verge of becoming empty. And I sort of started pulling on that thread. You know, I often, as a writer, I'm following my own curiosity. And so when something sort of lights up my brain, I'm interested in in why. So I started to explore that and discovered that there's about 2,500 towns in Italy that are considered perilously depopulated is the phrase that, that often the, the research uh, uses. And there's about 2 million houses um, that are vacant across Italy. So I was curious in that and understanding it. And then in 2018, I had a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts to do research in Italy as the basis for this novel. So... I visited about a dozen of these small towns and villages, and actually my older daughter came along for part of that trip. She happened to be studying in England. And we saw this incredible variety of these these towns, and it was on that trip that I discovered the real town of Civita de Bagnoregio, which is the basis for the fictional Valletto. And through the experience of spending time in the town, interviewing some of those folks, and understanding their story, which essentially they used to be this thriving town of about 3,000 people, first settled by the Etruscans. In 1695, there was this massive earthquake. About a third of the town crumbled into the valley. And really ever since then, Civita has been declining through landslides and earthquakes. And there are just, when I visited, 10 full-time residents living there. And I realized through that experience that the book I really wanted to write ended up being not so much about abandoned Italy, but about the people who stay. You know, who are these 10 people who are so attached to the crumbling ground beneath their feet that they refuse to leave? And that really 
sort of became the narrative thread that I kept pulling on as I started to work on the book and, and really shows up in lots of ways in the novel. The narrator is an academic. Yeah. yeah. Bit like you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there, there's definitely, I could pull from my own experience in the academic world. So Hugh Fisher is our narrator. He's an American historian. He's a social historian who specializes in abandonment. And as you know, probably from, from reading it, there's sort of multiple levels of abandonment going on in Hugh's own yes. <laughs> life. Yes. And so he returns to Valletto actually on sabbatical as a guest lecturer. He's going to do some teaching and, and lecturing gigs in Italy. But when he returns to this town where his mother was born and raised and where he spent his childhood summers, you know, as we heard in the intro, he discovers that this woman from the north of Italy has taken up residence there. And so... Hugh as a historian was interesting because, you know, historians are trained to be sort of, you know, professionally trained to be dispassionate in some mm. ways about the legacies of history. But he is in this world, with, even with his own family and what he discovers about his mother, where history refuses to be neutered, if you if you will, yeah. it's sort of and, and it becomes a very personal thing for him. And also, it was in this town of Valletto that he discovered his own passion for history. So he's sort of in this; um, these collision forces are coming together between his professional identity as a historian, then just personally as you know, someone who's lost his wife and his mother and uh, and a father to a, a young woman in her twenties. And the family that he comes from is is quite interesting. It's a, a matriarch here, I guess. It's yeah. headed by Ida, who's yep. about to turn 100. That's right, that's and right. And her three daughters, who are still alive, Hazel, Hugh's mother, is deceased. Uh, and so Hugh's caught in the middle because, I think, as you say, as a historian, he's trying to be objective about this woman whose claim... Yeah. And right. they're, of course, saying she's an imposter yeah. and... <laughs> Yeah, he. I mean, I think Hugh as a as a character, as the narrator, he's caught between fair play and objective. You know, the sort of objective science of his own profession, and you know, the the reality of family history is it's very personal. It's very messy, and so he has to sort of excavate his way into the places where those those two histories come together, and. I did have great fun with the the sisterhood in the in the book. So Violet, Iris, and Rose are the three living sisters, and as you mentioned, Hazel is Hugh's mother, and she's passed away. And then Ida was a was a fun creation because I also wanted to tell the story of an Anglo-Italian family, and Ida's story actually came about because one of the things I discovered in my research was this fascinating story about the Marquis de Ray, who was this French nobleman who sort of sold... He was really a con man. He, I mean, he sold this fictional voyage to a uh, supposed island paradise off the coast of New Guinea in the 1880s to a bunch of Italians. There were about 200 or so. And they sailed to this sort of overgrown, you know, tropically dense island where there was no settlement at all in New Ireland. And then those Italians ended up being rescued by a boat that was sent 
by Sir Henry Parks, and they came to Sydney. And there's a settlement between Sydney and, say, northern New South Wales called New Italy that is no longer there, but there's a little sort of a rest stop and some signs about it. And those families all descended from that original sort of batch of rescued Italians who came into Sydney. So I wanted to tell, I wanted to thread, you know, part of my own, I mean, I don't actually have Italian heritage, but, you know, so much of what I'm interested in as a writer is sort of finding these gaps and silences of history and the Marquita Ray story, how those Italians came to Sydney. And then I had, you know, fun narratively transplanting Ida to Italy, where she intersects with a totally different Italian family, mm. and and that sort of comes to bear in the novel. Yes, no, because I think in Sierra de Vos you also had an Australian <laughs> character. So you- I've, I've I've wrestled with that. I I think one of the things that's really strong in my own family is I come from, especially on my mother's side of the family, just people who set out into the world and ended up in very unlikely places. So on my mother's side, her family uh, emigrated actually first from Scotland to the United States, uh, settled in Kentucky, and then after five years went back to Scotland and immigrated to Queensland and have you know, basically been in Queensland since the 1880s. And I'm just fascinated in my writing and in my own personal sort of life with where people end up and the sort of, you know, the way that history pushes people into these far reaches of the globe. So my way of paying homage to that perhaps is to is to settle some of my novels with Australians who come at it from all kinds of uh, different places. This novel, it seems to me it's meticulously researched. I mean, there's a secret which yeah. we won't divulge, yeah. but um, which happens during the Second World War. Yeah. Where did you get that sort of idea? Yeah, so there was a, a, there's actually a couple really important sources in the book. One is this woman, Iris Arago, who wrote a book called War in Valdorcha. Yes. Yeah, I don't know if you know it, but yeah, so, so that book was the first time I sort of heard about the story. And interestingly, I discovered that book in Chivita. Oh. While I was interviewing one of the elderly residents, that book happened to be on a shelf. Um, and we started talking about World War II and its impact on the region. So the story obviously is that, you know, from uh, during sort of 43 or so in Milan and Turin, when those cities were being bombed, a lot of kids who were not always orphaned, but just refugees were sent south to sort of be put up for safekeeping in villas and small towns all through Umbria and Tuscany and... And I'd never heard that story specifically about Italy, so that was new to me. So, so I sort of, you know, started really digging into that research. And then the other part that I had no idea about was that Italy had a brief republic at the end of World War II. So for about a month in a valley called the Osola Valley in the north, as the Germans were more or less in retreat, the fascists had sort of been disbanded, the, the partisan groups, about five or six of them, rallied together and near uh, the town of Domodossolo, put up a republic. They had their own flag. They were recognized by Switzerland. And then there was sort of crush at the very end of the war. But, uh, you know, I'm always interested in sort of like, what do we know about something like World War II? There's so much knowledge. There's so many books written. But what are the things that maybe feel fresh and feel new? Mm. Yes, it, it does. It comes through. It's um, You've done a wonderful job. I mean, the book, too, is... 
It's also about grief, isn't it? Mm. Because um, Hugh is going, his wife has passed away and he's still struggling. Yeah. Hugh is an interesting character because in some ways I wanted to write through the lens of grief, but I also don't, you know, grief is a tricky territory as a writer because it's it, it has a tendency to f- to not be full of energy, <laughs> understandably. <laughs> right? So your question as a fiction writer is like, how do I give this narrator who's sort of beset with grief propulsion? Mm. And the the trick with Hugh is that the propulsion largely comes from outside of him. So a lot of the novel is the pyrotechnics between the three sisters, the grandmother, this visitor from the north of Italy who shows up, and they really like galvanize the story. Mm. But Hugh, his you know, good heroes in fiction also have a journey. And so the journey is from this somewhat stunted, fairly passive state where you know he's lost his wife, he's lost his mother, he's sort of at a crossroads in his own career. And he's looking, I think without even knowing it, he's looking for the thing that will give the next era of his life some meaning. And I don't think it's the, you know, the clouds part and he suddenly realizes there's this hallelujah moment. It's more like that first step as someone emerges from grief to feel like there's solid ground there and they can make their way forward. So I was interested in that with him. He does develop a relationship of sorts with Alicia, yeah. the squatter. Yeah. <laughs> and that leads him on a, a journey. You know, because when Alicia shows up at the cottage in the beginning, um, when Hugh returns, she has this letter that she claims is the deathbed letter of Aldo Serafina, Hugh's grandfather. And so, you know, I had fun with the sort of Italian melodrama aspect of this, of like, you know, the family really resisting this claim, bringing in a graphologist and a private detective. All that goes under the microscope. But meanwhile, Hugh is sort of compelled to do what feels fair and right and sort of really dig into it objectively. But of course, it becomes messy as he realizes that this person, Elisa, um, is just sort of mesmerizing in her own way. She's very uh, determined, very sort of like self-possessed. Yes. Uh, she's a mover and a shaker, and and he's she's drawn to that. An Anthony Bourdain type. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's as a, a chef. chef. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, she, she's you know she's owned an award-winning uh, restaurant in Milan. She's sort of at her own crossroads, which is part of why she's come to claim this cottage on behalf of her family. This kind of long-standing but unpaid debt. And so, you know, Hugh is a character who needs strong character forces around him to propel him into action. You've given him lots <laughs> lots of strong characters. Yep. And it's wonderful how he, he does, well, he and Alicia go on this journey to... Mm-hmm. Yeah, to the north of Italy. So the Osola Valley, where I mentioned before yeah. there was this republic, there's a network of about seven little valleys up there mm. that I spent time in. Where is this exactly? It's sort of like right near the border with Switzerland. So, right. you know, northeast part of Italy. And so there's a lot of partisan activity up there. A lot of it? partisans. Because, because the stuff could come over the border. Right? Exactly. So there was, when the Allies invaded Sicily, they started pushing north. Mm. And so the partisans sort of naturally were also, you know, there was a kind of domino effect. They were also retreating north where there was more ground to be gained. Yeah. And they ended up in the Alps where it was a lot easier 
to work with allies once the armistice had happened to get supplies, to radio. Uh, and so the partisans lived up often in these little mountain huts. They had, you know, secret identities. These women often who were called the stafette, who sort of carried supplies into the mountains for the partisan soldiers. And that was also an important part of this journey because it really is in a way this intersection between like the north Italian and the south, sort of the, the central central part of Italy. And this was the bridge. And this is also the bridge between the two families because Aldo had left the area of Umbria in 1944 and it ended up all the way up north in the, in the Alps. Yeah. I think the other thing that I was looking at when I did the research was... I got to discover not only these places where there's, you know, five, seven people living in this tiny town in the Alps, I also got to discover these amazing comeback stories. So uh, in the Alps, one of my favorite stories is this town that is in this very steep valley called Viganella. The town basically doesn't get any sunlight for two months of the year. And so this very enterprising mayor commissioned an engineering project to put an enormous mirror on one side of the valley and direct sunlight down into the little sort of piazza. And it it actually stopped people from leaving the town in the middle of winter because they used to just sort of, there would be a mass exodus. And I've got pictures of people sort of reading newspapers and hanging out in the town with this, you know, reflected daylight. And, you know, there's a town in, in Abruzzo that was completely empty for decades. And then uh, this, this Roman entrepreneur basically bought up the town and turned it into like a, a hotel called an Albergo de Fuso, where you essentially stay in one of these renovated medieval houses instead of a, a normal hotel room. So part of that research was, was about really discovering just how resilient some of these places are. Without giving anything away, there is, there's a scandal Hugh and Lucia discover. Yep. Where did you get the idea for that? Was that something that you'd heard? Indirectly. I mean, sort of the way I approach the research in these places is that I want to capture, especially the real town of Civita de Bagnoregio, I want to pay sort of close attention to the history and the, the geology and sort of model that in the book. But really the, the, the family, the storyline is largely invented. But there is one, you know, one of the, one part of the plot has to do with fascism in Italy and the, it's sort of Italy's complicated relationship to, to fascism over, over time. And that came to me actually while I was in one of these towns that had many abandoned and empty houses. And someone just mentioned in passing that that house used to belong to the fascist. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, interesting. Mm. And they just said it very casually, and I circled back with some other people, and I was like, tell me more. And I think a lot of small towns and villages at various parts in World War II, there might be one, there might be five, there might be dozens members of the local fascist committee. And after the war, there was a social reckoning in terms of how do we live together, what happens to these people. Obviously, people who are high up in the fascist party were executed or imprisoned or whatever. But the rank-and-file people, the committee members, often continued to live on in some of those communities, and people never really forgot it. And I was interested in that question of, like, well, if, if that person had been your neighbor 
for 50 years, and then they go through World War II, and it ends the way it does. What happens in the aftermath of that? Mm. Yeah. It's really interesting. and gives the book another another dimension. It's, um, yeah. It's terrific. I, I wanted to ask you about your technique, because to me this book seems technically perfect. Well, thank you. <laughs> it's got a wonderful story, terrific narrative. It rings true. How how do you write? You teach writing, don't you? I do. I do teach. You know, I've I've taught writing in a graduate creative writing program for about twelve years or so. But I've done all different kinds of writing. I mean, I think for me as a writer, the sentences always come first. I don't really think a lot about plot as an external force. I sort of approach the writing as, you know, I've never been interested in quotas or I'm going to write X number of pages a day. I just try to write sentences that are pleasing to me. (laughs) That means that some days I'm incredibly unproductive. I may only write a page. I may write five pages on a really good day. But I'm interested in like what happens when you just pull on the thread of what's in the work there are moments where you sort of have to zoom out and step away and really think about plot. And if I'm going to do this thing in you know, Act 3, how do I set it up well in Act 1? And there are some tinkering you have to do. But, but by and large, I want the plot to emerge naturally out of my own sort of curiosity with what's going on on the page. And it's coming back to it each day and feeling like, well, what's bubbling up here? What's interesting what's pleasing to me, and then really just approaching it from that direction. That's sort of been the model. So when you wrote this, were you writing from Hugh's perspective? And Not originally. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, so, so this actually went through, it started out in third person, and I finished maybe, I sort of have this approach where I use the first hundred pages as, a, as the sort of launch pad for the whole novel. So I spent a lot of time getting the first hundred pages right. It was in third person. It was in. It was set a little more historically. Uh, now it's set in, in twenty eleven, and I haven't written in first person since actually the beautiful miscellaneous many books ago. I'd done sort of like three books in a row that were all historical. They're all sort of third person omniscient. There's a lot of fun and power for a writer in omniscience, but I felt like I needed a new challenge. And so I wanted to work with a narrator who, you know, the trickiest thing with first person is always like, why does this person have to tell the story? And once you feel like that storyteller, it's necessary and it's really a story they have to tell, then it sort of opens up all kinds of interesting avenues. So then it was just about getting his voice right and understanding how, you know, how you can have this voice that's beset with grief but not a downer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because nobody really wants to read a narrator who is so downtrodden that it that it just feels like you're you're sort of wading through, you know, knee-high water. Mm. Yeah. I think what's really clever too is that you've got these other vibrant characters and there's a danger that they could become caricatures, but they don't. They they live in their own. And that's hard too. I feel like secondary characters are, are often challenging because there's sometimes a tendency to make them quote-unquote colourful, but without the colour having real meaning, you know. And I think, you know, if you think about your own experiences in life, we all interact with people and you're like, oh, that person's a real character. If you just put them on the page, maybe as they appear to you, it's, it's, they can feel like a caricature. So I'm always looking for you know, what are the things 
in the sisters' personalities that make them sort of earned by their history and trying not to just make easy choices just for the sake of, you know, quirkiness or idiosyncrasy. So, yeah, <laughs> it's always a balance, though. I loved um, the feel of Italy, that you obviously have a great affection yeah. and knowledge of Italy. Yeah, I mean, so, so much so Do you speak Italian? I, you know, my Italian used to be a lot better than it is now. I was studying it when I did the grant and the research in 2018. And then, of course, the pandemic happened. So the plan had always been to sort of do this initial research in Italy, then go back and sort of continue to get more and more and sort of layer down into the research. What ended up happening is that I had taken this research trip. By the time I was ready to take another stab at research, the pandemic was upon us. And I ended up having to write the book sort of in isolation. I had a few email addresses with people who were insiders into this world that I could fact check things with and, and, and pick their brains. But in a weird way, it was the right book to be working on during the pandemic because so much of it is about disconnection and isolation and abandonment. It was sort of rewarding from that point of view to really be thinking about these things while you know the world was being totally transformed. Well, I think on that note, we should wrap it up. But Return to Valletto is a wonderful book. It's a great story. But it's also got grief, it's got love, it's got redemption <laughs> and revenge. <laughs> it does have revenge, for sure. <laughs> uh, so to all you listeners who haven't read it, I strongly recommend it. I think a terrific achievement. Congratulations, Dominic. Thank you so and much. Thank you so much for writing it. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Mike. Mm. Appreciate it. Return to Valletto is available from all reading stores and from our website, where you can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast. And you'll also find all kinds of other recommendations of great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I would like to acknowledge traditional owners of this land and pay my respects to others past, present, and those to come. Thank you.